I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Brant. He had an addiction to cocaine and alcohol. Let's talk about it. Got to invest in some lip chat, bro. Dude, yes. <laughs> dude, dude, do I ever. Lip chat. Do I ever. I need some. I, I think I have eczema now. <laughs> Actually, you know, it, it, this is not a joke. I have, I have lip chap that I l- use for my uh, for my my lips, but I also have another lip chap that I the that I have like semi hidden in my car. No, no, no. That's just that's just lube. Uh, <laughs> uh, another one in my car hidden somewhere that I use for my nose. So, so no. like, yeah, I'm not even joking. Inside your nose? Inside like, my nostrils. And I go, I could have used that like 13 years ago when I was <laughs> Well, I think that's a good transition <laughs> into the conversation. They didn't, uh, have, they didn't have any Amazon back then. <laughs> Next day delivery. Oh, fuck. Um, well, let's get right really to it. Uh, Brant, nice to meet you. Uh, we're glad that you're, you're taking some time to sit down and talk to us. Um, we are going to be diving head first into what I'm assuming, uh, based off the, the little bit that I've skimmed through your book is going to be, uh, quite a harrowing tale of adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Brant, you, why don't you, you, uh, give our listeners a little bit of an introduction into who you are and, and, uh, what you spent so much of your career struggling with. Yeah, that's a try and do it as quick as I can. Um, we got time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I like every other kid. I dreamed of playing in the National Hockey League. Um, I uh, I discovered alcohol relatively young, I believe, 16, 17. And then uh, I got drafted to the NHL at 18, made the NHL at 20. Got introduced to cocaine to cocaine at that point. And uh, at that moment in my life, I, I found something that I actually loved more than hockey. And, um, you know, it, it, it literally, that feeling or that thought or whatever, however you want to call it, followed me throughout a career for, I believe, six teams. Uh, I went to a treatment facility four times, and then I, I, I went to my fifth rehab in 2008. Wow. Where I got, uh, where I finally got sober and I got a lifetime ban from the National Hockey League, I believe in 2006, um, where I couldn't play in North America anymore. And because um, they had a four strike rule. Mm-hmm. It was funny when the, when they first introduced me to the program or the whatever, the substance abuse program, I'm like, how many strikes do I get? <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, well, it's like, a bad f- question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, they're like, well, it's a four stage process. I'm like, really? So I've only, you know, burnt one stage. And they're like, yeah. 
So I, I rattled through all four of them. And then, uh, anyways, I went to England. It was terrible. I came back. Uh, I got arrested um, one night, February, I believe, 17th, late at night. I, I don't remember anything other than two cops were on my back in the snow. <clears throat> and uh, I was living on a buddy's couch, um, driving my dad's old Jeep. I couldn't afford a car. And um, I think I had a few hundred dollars left to my name. I was selling used cars at a, at a Mini Cooper uh, spot. They wouldn't even put me onto the used or to the new side. <laughs> my fucking life was terrible. Yeah. And I had at that point when I woke up after being arrested, I had really two options. One was to um, take as many, uh, as many grams of cocaine as I could to end this fucking nightmare or get sober. So mm. I went on a plane they sent me my dog. I had a girl being born. My first child was being born in a week and I didn't know how long I was going to be gone for. And, uh, <clears throat> they said, uh, you don't have to worry this time about length. Just, just get on that plane. So I went and I was in treatment for eight months. I didn't see Chloe. Um, so she, oh, fuck, that's always a tough one until so she was eight months old. And, um, you know, looking back at it now with 13 years clean and sober, um, we have an amazing relationship mm. and uh, I'm really glad I got on the plane. Uh, congratulations, man. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, what a, uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised that you got through it all, uh, <clears throat> that in that short amount of time, like that, that was a lot packed into one, uh, one very short monologue. Yeah. And, I, have a, uh, I have a thousand <laughs> questions. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I just, I just want to say, first of all, yeah, like, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, I, I echo Tay's sentiments there. Congratulations on, on where you are now. Um, because obviously you have come very far. Um, mm -hmm. but if, if, if it's, if you don't mind, I would love to kind of rewind back to, back to the, the very beginning one of the things that that kind of stuck out to me there um, was how you said uh, in in being uh, picked up by the NHL and starting that career at age twenty, um, you got introduced to cocaine at that point. Is that I, I I feel like I mean I I hear that and I'm kind of like whoa really and and I'm sure there's some other people out there that might be kind of. Um, surprised to hear that like is do you mind if it, I do you mind if I jump in sure for, yeah. just because I'm I come from I I grew up playing hockey and I and I uh, I I played high level hockey and um and had scholarship opportunities in NCAA played junior A in Ontario and here in Nova Scotia <laughs> in the Maritimes and that was kind of where it ended and like my passion for it fizzled out but um coming up up until I played in junior like drugs really drugs and alcohol like you know like maybe friday saturday night in high school if we didn't have a game something like that you know a couple guys maybe smoked a little weed but like really no, no no drugs but then when i got to junior was when i found that that was quite a different scenario and i always mm. felt like and I, and because i never went beyond that into the pro ranks i always kind of felt like i always maybe naively or definitely naively felt like as long as you are on that, like on the cutting edge or at the top of the field, drug use isn't really occurring because to be there, you can't do that. Right. Yeah. And it was when I got to junior A and you got this like mix of guys that were 
you know, some guys were trying to go scholarship route. Some guys were still trying to, you know, get, um, you know, later junior opportunities to go pro. But then you had the other crop of guys that were, you know, they were on cruise control playing the last couple of years of their junior careers and, you know, having a really <laughs> good time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I always felt like the pro, like pros weren't, weren't engaging in that. What, what was your, and then going back to, to how Jeremy kind of set up that question there, like when you got into the pro ranks, were you sort of, was that a surprise? Was that a surprise to you getting there that there was like, that there was drug use happening or is it just like a product of, you know, you give people money and that's what happens. I think that's like a two, twofold answer on my part. One is, um, as, as when I got hired by the LA Kings, I told uh, Dean Lombardi that uh, not like not everybody's going to have a problem here, uh, Dean. You know, there's there's 24 guys in this room, but there's going to be two that do. And that was this, not every fucking guy on the team had a problem. Yeah. Right. right? Like no matter what style of work you're working in, um, there's going to be one or two people that are suffering from addiction. Mm. Uh, and I was one of them. There was probably 19, 18 guys on my team that were, that were, that could drink socially. Mm-hmm. Sure. Maybe yeah. smoke a joint or, you know, maybe do a little bump of Coke, but shut her down, not touch it again for six months. Yeah, right. So I wasn't in that category and now you had money. So I didn't come from money. All of a sudden, you know, I'm 20 and I, I think I was making around 200, 200 grand or something like that. My first year in the NHL, um, which to me was a ton of cash. Oh yeah. And I was doing, you know, I was doing the most expensive drug on the planet at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's not like going and buying a case of beer for 13 bucks. I was buying a gram of Coke for 120. Yeah. And that's a gram's not a lot if you like to do blow. Yeah. Um, so now you're, now you're spending 300 for sure in a, just for an eight ball blow. And then, um, so I had the cash. So now you feel the, you know, the, the predisposed DNA, whatever you want to call it, that I'm wired differently than people. And I have money now. Um, it's almost a recipe for, for disaster. I guess, I guess as someone who, who hasn't ever been in like, who, who, who has never played hockey at any level, um, but I'm like, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've, I'm a, for my, almost my entire life, I was a massive Maple Leafs fan, uh, all because of my father. I blame him on that. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you As know, as it goes. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and, and I, I watched, I would watch religiously. And how many games are in a season for a team? There's 82, 82 games in a season. That's a lot of games to, to like show up for, right? That's a lot of games to like be, it's wild. Constantly training for and, and, and traveling for and, and performing for. And so I guess the, the, one of the things like that I'm, I'm just so endlessly curious about is like, um, where, like, where does this fit? Like, where does this sort of lifestyle fit into that lifestyle as a, as a professional athlete? Is mm-hmm. it, is it like, is it like the moments where oh we don't we we have we don't have a game for two days mm-hmm. and we're we're home for a day, let's find time to party? Or is it like we had a great game last night or tonight, let's 
ring in the celebration of a win with a bender at the hotel, like and where, do it all again. To, to and, and then, yeah. And then repeat like rinse and repeat kind of over and over again. Like wh- where were you finding the, the time to party within, within m- trying to maintain a career as a professional NHL mm-hmm. hockey player? Well, it really, you know, it, it always amped up um, for me when the season was done. So basically right. when April hit, if you didn't make the playoffs, you had like, four and a half months to turn your alarm off. I thought you guys played golf. (laughs) (laughs) I I was, I don't know if if you read the book, you'll see I wasn't a golf. (laughs) I I wasn't too good at golf, but uh, so there was about four, four months there where where I would just, you know, uh, I would turn my, I wouldn't set an alarm. Yeah. And then I'd just go to the bank machine. Um, So, and then during the year, for me, if it was like a big game where I knew I had to fight somebody, uh, didn't matter what day it was. Um, after the game, I'd reward myself because um, of the, all of the the added stress and pressure of of you know bare knuckle fighting in front of thousands of people. It's it's overwhelming at times, and right. um, so I would uh, <laughs> say, okay, I'm going to get this done for a shift, and then uh, you know I'm going out to wherever a strip club or a, or whatever it may be to really unwind and not think about a guy that I have to fight in two more days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just, the whole season was like that. I mean, I never really got any nights off unless I was injured mm-hmm. and I wasn't playing. Is that how set up it is like being, being a fighter in the NHL? Like, is it, you, you know, like, Oh, we're playing, you know, team X on Saturday mm-hmm. night. I know that they, they've got this fighter. We're basically, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to go a couple <laughs> rounds with them. Well, there, you're, you're right. And there's so many little things that other fighters will tell you. Like, so for instance, let's say, remember when the Oilers lost three games to Toronto in a row? The, oh, yeah. This, yeah. this last yeah. couple of weeks. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'd know the momentum needed to change. So when we went into wherever on the next game and they had their tough guy playing, I was going to, so I knew I, we were going to go to try and set the momentum up for the game. And, uh, or if we got down, let's say we were down two goals at home and the crowd was starting to boo. Well, then I'd go out mm-hmm. and get, mm-hmm. get the crowd going again. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't necessarily like I didn't like the guy or the game was chippy. Sometimes you had to do it and realize how to switch the momentum of a game going towards uh, your team. Yeah. And I had, I, when I was playing junior, you know, you know, you know, Tony, I played yeah. with a guy, Tony Pisano, you know, um, pizza, tried, pizza, tried to skate with a lot of NHL teams, um, uh, you know, in his like eight, 19, 20 year old season, just trying to make it. And, um, you know, six, seven, two fifty, guys, just <laughs> a monster. Guy, yeah. <laughs> it's like the sweetest guy on the planet. But, and he would go out there and, you know, when we, whenever we played, you know, there'd be, you know, there'd be his, there'd be his like equal and opposite on the other team. And, you know, they'd be skating along the, along the the red line and warm up. And it's just like, you know, they're, they're having little chats, they're passing each other. And you know, that at some point in the first or second period, and like you said, depending on where the momentum is, depending on when it suits the team best, they'll, they'll go. And hockey is this crazy sport in the way that you can bare knuckle box. 
yeah. and you're allowed mm-hmm. to, and you yeah, get a yeah. you get a fairly a minimal uh, penalty for that. And it is a part, and the, the part craziest of part of it is how part of a game it is. And like you said, Brant, is how it will swing the momentum of the game. It'll change the mood of the crowd, which influences the way that everybody feels. It's like this mental. It's like this mental fuckery <laughs> for the for the other team for for one team and like a boost for another. I'm wondering how, like over the years, there it, there seems to be. And correct me if I'm wrong from like from you know your work that you're doing right now mm-hmm. in the NHL that fighters seem to be disproportionately affected uh, with uh, mental health issues, addiction issues. Is that would you say that that's would you say that that's accurate or is that is that something that maybe the media uh, the media blows out of proportion a little bit? No, I I don't. I mean, you know what, you guys, it's hard for you guys to understand um, or just the average fan what it's like to put yourself. Um, you know, a boxer they'll they'll train for for six months for one fight with gloves on. Yeah. Um, MMA fighter, same thing, right? three, four months, they train. Well, unless it'd be like one of you gentlemen just running into a monster at a coffee shop and saying, Hey, you know what? We're going to go down to this. We're going to go down to this playground. We're going to fill it with 19,000 people. And, uh, we're going to score off tomorrow night Mm -hmm. at seven o'clock. You know, I fucking, I guarantee you tonight, you wouldn't be sleeping too good. Yeah. And, 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 but, but, but again, it just, it never ends. So no wonder the guys that did my job had to somehow medicate to not really think about it, whether it was a, whether it was a joint or a pill or a drink or whatever it was to not really face the inevitable. And the worst part about all that is about uh, three hours prior to the game, when you're getting dressed and you see all the guys in the dressing room and they're laughing and they're taping their sticks. And, you know, I'm not fucking saying a word to anybody. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm getting into gladiator mode, uh, in three hours and it, t- it takes a, it took a real toll on me. Mm. Did you know that at the time or was that, is it only in hindsight mm. that you can really understand how it was affecting you? Well, when I wrote the book, I, I got to dig, dig deep on, you know, now I'm out of the game for a long time, but I also, you know what you guys like, my first fist fight on the ice was when I was 15 years old. Like I'm just a kid. I'm a baby mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. And then as a 16 year old in junior, um, I led the league, uh, as a 16 year old in fights. Um, not the whole, I just meant as a other 16 year old. So I had 20 some fights. And then the next year I had 40 fights as a 17. So I was again, getting trained or groomed or however you want to put it to um just go on autopilot yeah like i didn't like if if me and you were buddies and we hung out for the weekend and we had a great time and um you know i considered you a really good friend well i'd want to knock your fucking head off the next night Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. think about that mentality like you sitting across your buddies there and you want to fucking kill them tomorrow night Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and that's and that's really how we had to think back then it's changed i mean listen the game is not even close to, to when I played in the nineties yeah, in the early two thousands, it's changed. It, it's a different game. Totally. I, I know, you know, in saying that it's a different game, um, back then when, when you were going through all this, you know, playing as an enforcer, um, 
having to show up in this way every single night, all while struggling with your own addiction and, you know, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Was there anyone on your team that, um, that you felt like you could confide in or, 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 or was there anyone on your team who was noticing like, Oh fuck man, Brant's slipping. Like we, mm. we should have a, we should have a, like a, we should have a chat. Um, mm. or, or was the, was the mentality at the time, you know, I mean, I think about my, I think about my old man and like the, the generation that he comes from. And, and a lot of the, a lot of times when it comes to like hardcore struggle, it's like, his generation, their whole mentality was fucking suck it up. Mm. Sweep that shit under the rug. You know, push that down. Don't man up. Don't don't cry about it. Yeah. Don't be, you know, don't be whatever. Like just mm-hmm. you know the you know the narrative, right? Um did you have anyone on your team that you could talk to or that you felt like you could talk to or who you felt like wanted to talk to you? Mm. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Like I didn't, you know, you guys have to also understand that the more people that know about my problem, the higher percentage it is that I'm not going to get that nice little fucking paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. Right. Mm. It just, just a numbers game. So I wasn't going to let anyone into my own little sick world at that point. Um, of course there were players that saw what I was, what I was going through and they would pull me aside and talk to me and try and help me. But I wish that I had a, like the, the role that I filled in LA where I was almost like a third party confident um, guy that the players could talk to behind closed doors and the way that I had it set up in Los Angeles is I couldn't tell anybody about it. Mm. Um, so you start to build trust with guys. If I had something like that, like let's say Bob Probert was sober and he was doing that role. I mean, I would have used Bob for sure. Yeah. yeah. Knowing that like it, it was all about trust. Right. So if mm. he wasn't going to run up to the coach's <laughs> office and tell yeah. him that Mizey was out last night, yeah, then I'd, I'd talk to him. Yeah. Can, can you, can you explain to our listeners what that job was that you, that you had with the Kings just, mm-hmm. just for, because I don't think we've actually kind of covered exactly what it, what it was that you were doing. Mm-hmm. Can you, can mm-hmm. you unpack that for us? Yeah. So uh, Dean Lombardi and Daryl Sutter, uh, I, I was with them in San Jose and they saw me go through all that stuff. And then I wrote a, a proposal to the national hockey league and the NHLPA when I was in my fifth treatment center the first night I got there, because I knew that it would, I, I just wanted to give back. I was so grateful for what they did for me. And I knew that I could reach other players that were struggling like I was. Anyways, I sent those out for six years straight. Never heard a thing. And then I was in LA and I was in Dean's office. And I said, hey, Dean, I said, uh, I, I wrote a program up. I said, would you like to look at it? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you may email it over. So a year goes by. And then I see in the news that um, three of the LA Kings players were um, arrested and in trouble. And, uh, and then one day my phone rang and he said, Hey, can you fly to LA? And uh, so I did. Uh, I had the program built for the last seven years. I mean, I knew it like, you know, mm-hmm. word for word. And uh, so then I was just a, a um, almost like an injured player that could lend assistance uh to any of the players that were struggling with substance abuse issues Mm. and the way that i had it staged in three state or four stages 
was in the first two stages is that I couldn't, no matter what you told me, I was, I wasn't able to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't complying with what I wrote out in stage one and stage two, that I'd, in stage three, I'd have to bring in the general manager. And they knew that. Right. Um, but for the most, it, it never got to stage three. Uh, I was always working with the guys one-on-one and they were great. And um, so that's sort of what I did for three years in LA. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a really like that, that structuring it that way in, in that, in that you are a sort of this third party that, you know, has an, that you're connected to the team, but your like allegiance isn't to the team. It's to mm-hmm. the player first and then, and then the team, like that's so crucial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. listening, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, a uh, cycling podcast, and they were talking about, um, they were talking about mental health and, in in the world of cycling right now, there's this really big rider who who decided to just go, you know, he's at the top of the game and he just decided I, I need to take a break. And everyone was like, whoa, what the fuck? Why are you taking, <laughs> you're taking a break? You're at the top of the sport. And he's like, this sport is destroying my mind and I need <laughs> to step away from it. And, you know, he's being praised. And then it's kind of sparked this conversation about people struggling with their mental health, addictions, whatever it might be you know, them feeling like they can come forward and they were, and this, this guy, Bradley Wiggins was reflecting on his, when he was at the top of the sport 10 years ago, they had a person like that, but his allegiance was to the, was to the program, was to the team. So if, so if somebody was struggling, he wasn't, it it, it would get back to the team management as a liability rather than, rather than something that he could go and confidently speak to somebody about, get help yeah. for it, be supported by the team um, and know that there's a trust between him and that third party. So that setting up that program in those phases so that you're not just, you're not, you're not going to your team and going like, Hey, liability. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going there and saying, you're going there and, and talking to somebody who, who, who is not going to be, you know, relaying every bit of information to the GM and to the coach, but you're going to be there with that player and helping them get over those, those first few steps that they need mm-hmm. to like, what is that? What does that look like in those first couple phases? Well, you need a, first off, you need a general manager that's willing to right. um, not necessarily ask too many questions, which is, yeah. which is really yeah. hard because they, that's a, some of those teams are billion dollar corporations, yeah. you know, and they have to do weekly or bi-weekly reports on their staff. And I couldn't give a report. And if I did, it had a number, it didn't have a name. So right. he didn't, he didn't know who it was. Um, and we had a couple of times where <laughs> he'd he, he, Dean would be going back and forth in the hallway and he'd be like, fuck, he goes, all right, you know, I don't need to know who it was, but on a scale of one to 10, how bad was it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got her down to a seven, Dean. (laughs) 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 Okay. He turns around and he wanted to know so bad, but he knew that the way I had it structured, respect that you're paying me money to do a job. Let me do it. Right. So he was, you need a GM to buy into that or your, or or the role doesn't even work. I mean, the other thing is like, if you're, if, if you're not doing that work, it's not like those guys who are, who are suffering from those challenges or problems. It's not like they don't exist now because you're Mm -hmm. not there. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's better for, it's better for the GM to, 
to not know, but know that the people who need help are getting help yeah. rather than just pretend like it's not a problem in the first place. Yeah. And, um, with the, the program, you know, they have it set up where it's, it's sort of post problems. So like, like a red light situation, we'll take care of it then where Dean was really proactive. So he, you know, it's like, Oh, I see. Yeah. I mentioned in the book about um, hiring a SWAT team and you may not need though, that those guys in the SWAT team every day, but there'll be a moment where you've hired them and you're going to need them. And you're sure glad that you paid for them. And it's for NHL teams or any professional athlete team to have an insurance policy on their players. Um, I really don't see a downside to it. I mean, as considering that this hasn't already been something that's been, you know, the prevalent up to mm-hmm. this point, how was it received by the Kings, by the organization, by the players, by the, by the, um, by the ones that, that needed your, your help? <clears throat> well, it was, it, I, I thought it went fine. I thought, it, uh, I was very proud of the work that I did. I know, I know who I helped and who I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do the players. Yeah, it took me a while to break in into the whole like camaraderie of the group. Cause it, totally. you know, yeah. a hockey, a hockey dressing room is a, I've been in it and then the, <laughs> You just don't let anybody walk in there. And I I was on the team plane. I was on the team bus after the games, you know, like I was in the dressing room after the game. So they had to, they had to, they had to put trust into me and and it was a two way street. Um, But after about, I'd say six months of working there, the guy started calling me by my nickname, Mizey. And instead of Brandt and he could just start to feel the momentum change on the team. And then uh, when they were comfortable, it was uh, just like any other job. What Mm. what do you think, uh, what do you think stories like, um, I can't remember what year it was. I want to say it was like 2007, 2008 ish somewhere when Theo Fleury's book came out. What do you, what kind of impact do you think that I, I remember how groundbreaking that mm-hmm. that book was in the in the mm-hmm. I mean in Canada and around the world, but especially in the hockey world yeah. sp- specifically. And like, was that is that like a demarcation in the way that that the league that people in general started to think about addiction and mental health? I know we've come a long way. It feels like in the last five years. Obviously, wait, we need to do a lot more work, but especially mm-hmm. in the last few years, like. What kind of impact do you think, you know, Theo Fleury, you know, li- li- living this, just a just a wild ride of a life, and coming out and doing this, telling this book, and very similar to, to you know, to um, to you tell, being like an literally an open book on on um, on a very very roller coaster um, ride of a life with drug abuse. Um, what does that What does that do for the overall conversation? Well, I believe his book came out in 2008, if I'm correct. Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, and it's 2021. Um, and there's one team in the NHL that's doing it. I mean, it pretty much speaks yeah. for itself. Yeah, right. Yeah.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I, I kind of want to go. I kind of want to go back to where you were talking about how you ended up. You know, so so you you end up getting a lifetime ban from the NHL. Which uh, are you the first person to receive that? Is there is there any? How many lifetime bans have been dished out in the NHL? Well, from my understanding. Oh, my understanding, I'm the first player to be banned for life for dr- for drug uh, and alcohol use. Right. Um, and I believe I'm the only player, I think, to ever be just banned for life. There was a gentleman uh, back in 19, I think, 37, maybe 1927. He got banned for uh, hitting a referee. Right. for life okay. and then yeah. i and then i believe two years later they lifted the ban so he could play again right away um but as far as I, my understanding uh it's not necessarily a title that like <laughs> i want to put on a hat totally yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. no, they didn't give you a medal <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean it's like yeah. it, 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 would i like to be known for something other yeah. than the only guy banned for life from the from the league mm. um maybe maybe not i mean it put me in a position now to write this book where mm-hmm. uh i guess looking back at all the oh my god all the moments of my life where i was thinking why me why is this happening well i understand it now and yeah. the response i've had from people that um have gotten a hold of me after they've read the book uh already has made it worth it i mm. i can imagine being told like hey we are banning you for life was like um, a pretty a pretty shocking and and you know for lack of a better word bummer of a moment in your in your life. Um, mm. Do you like when that happened? <clears throat> I, I know that you. I know now for sure you you see what was going on and you see how dire the situation was. But like, was there a sense of you that felt like your community was kind of turning their back on you, or 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 was everything so fucked up that you you kind of you kind of saw it coming? You you knew you knew what you were headed for. Oh yeah, I mean, you guys got to understand at that point. Uh, fuck, I was just so done with everything. Yeah. I mean, I I I went through four rehabs and uh, a year a year suspension, a six month suspension waited two years to get back to the league, lost all this money, um, fought George the Rock, got my face smashed in, surgery, uh, relapsed. I mean, fuck, I was done. Like, I, lifetime ban, okay, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't fucking care anymore. Like, Mm. you know, you're going to hit me, hit me with two lifetime bans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I, I, I just, I I was spent, I was done. Is that where you think that you were like, was that your rock bottom? Like, is that the lowest point that you were? Well, no, not at all because it got, it got lower. I mean, after I, uh, 
was hit with that. I went to England and then um, I was drunk for, I think, 22 days or something as soon as I landed off the plane. Uh, so I couldn't even make a tier seven league team in the England, whatever you want to call it. So they sent me home. Mm. So that's where I was sitting, uh, you know, with, at 33, I think, 34 years old with, uh, when you want to talk about squandered to life, I mean, it was, it was all gone. Everything mm. that I worked for was, was toast. And then, but then there was no, for me, I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. So then the cocaine and the, and the, and the whiskey was pretty often like right. it, it, I was living, I was living with people that, you know, weren't, they weren't going to tell me no. Mm-hmm. And so that continued on for that, that darkness that was for like a year and a half until I got arrested. And then that's that when my life changed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when you got arrested and, and you made this decision to, to go to rehab, ultimately missing your, your daughter's uh, birth, did you like, what was it about rehab this time around that, made it click like what mm-hmm. what stuck you know was it was it because you had hit rock bottom and you knew like it's either this or or take my life or or was yeah. there something about this like one particular um bout of rehab that like that that really just kind of shook it out of you and woke you up yeah they in the program of alcoholics anonymous or narcotics, whatever, whatever program or recovery program you're in, they talk about having a a spiritual shift. Mm. And at that point, God was the only one that was going to intervene and, and get me sober. There was no human on the earth that was going to do it Mm. because they all tried. So when I woke up that morning on the, on February 18th, when I hit my knees and, uh, I said a prayer that I really meant. I had this like weird feeling of um, this voice just saying, you're gonna, you're all done. Like mm. there's no more struggling. There's going to be no more fighting for you. It's all over. And uh, the obsession to do drugs and drink uh, was lifted that morning. Mm. I know that, uh, I know that, re- that, that religion um, and God, higher power, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, like is, is, is sort of ingrained in, in, um, the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not sure, quite sure if that, if it's reflected the same in Narcotics Anonymous, but, um, it, like, did you come from, was that something that was, that was, that did you grow up with, with faith? Was it something that was, that was familiar to you already or was it, or, or was that completely new to you? Because I'm, in, I'm interested in that specifically because it seems like be, that a lot of people who um, who go through those programs and find they find a lot of solace in um, in a faith. Mm. Um, and yeah. and, I'm, and I'm very intrigued, especially for people um, who who that wasn't a part of their life, and then it and then it and then it becomes that through the program. Yeah, I went to Catholic school, but I we had to go to church. I think it was like once a month. I just get that bread that they put under my mouth. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. You know, I just I was all excited to get it, and uh, and I 
I would say little prayers throughout my career, but they were all, Lord, please help me um, get out of this situation. Mm. Uh, please help me get out of, you know, the, the trouble that I'm in. And if, if you help me this one time, I won't do it again. Well, I burnt that prayer like to the ground. Mm. So when I got on my knees on um, February 18th, it was a different prayer. And it was, I don't need anything from you other than if you could please help me um, with the obsession because I, I can't seem to stop. And, uh, you know, I, I write in the book that I, I've cried before, but I've never, <clears throat> as they say, hysterically cried. Yeah. And I, could, I couldn't control it that morning. Mm. And once when I was finished crying, I had that, that warm feeling of, wow, it just felt like I had a, a huge, huge weight lifted off my shoulders. Mm. And it's hard to explain because I'm, again, when I say God, I don't think of some man in a chair with a beard and a cane. <laughs> I think of a, I think of a, some type of an angel or a spirit that might be guiding you. And if anybody's read my book, they know that there's gotta be something out there that was guiding me and, and, you know, with the overdoses and not dying and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, there's something was guiding me. Mm. It's pretty wild how we, and this is something that we've talked about on the show before is like when you, when you have, and especially, especially men and especially men in sports and especially men in sports at the top level, there is that stigma like, yo, you are a rock. You don't like that. You don't mm -hmm. crying is a no, no. And all that. When you have that emotional release and you have that cry that like it does not have an off switch, it just it goes and it and it stops whenever the tear ducts run out of juice. Mm. Like it is, it is something else. Like it, it is. I, I and I've I've had that experience a couple of times where where you just where you just go and and when it stops, you do like it's like you have a headache, your face feels swollen, but like. But you feel like you just took the best shower you ever had. In yeah, life. yeah, yeah. Like it is very much yeah. like a weight. You feel lighter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I think too, gentlemen. Like we focused on a lot of um, the I, I don't know if you want to call it sad elements of my life and my journey. I think it's important to focus on the good stuff too. Mm -hmm. And the last you know 125 pages of the book is really where people are going to get the juice mm -hmm. because this isn't a story, another story of a tragic ending of somebody dying. Um, you know, I, uh, I take pride in the fact that I have 13 years clean and that, um, the, my message in the book was, you know, if you know of somebody that might have a, a problem with drugs or alcohol or what, whatever it may be, you know, uh, just please never, ever give up on that person mm -hmm. because I know that my friend, some of my friends wrote me off and my family members because they were just too frustrated with that. This kid's never going to get it. He's never, yeah. he's, he's done. Yeah. And, and I did like, thank God I, it, it clicked in on the fifth treatment or I, again, we probably wouldn't be, we, we wouldn't be having this, uh, this call. That, that uh, is a, like a perfect segue into a question that we received from one of our listeners. Uh, one of our patrons, Megs, um, has a question for you, which is, what's the best advice you can give someone with uh, 
What's the best advice you can give someone with a loved one who struggles with addiction? What would be the best way to offer support without enabling? Well, I think the whole purpose behind the book, thanks, Meg, um, was that it, uh, I had somebody reach reach out to, to me as well that they, I believe it was their her son. She couldn't understand the, the thinking. Another kid reached out to me. I believe he was 16. His dad just killed himself with an overdose of fentanyl, I think. Mm. He said, thank you so much for your book. He said, I didn't understand what the d- disease was all about. I thought that my dad, I thought my dad, had, it, it was a willpower thing, you know, and that, that was his choice. And unfortunately, uh, with the disease of addiction, you know, we look at people differently if they have certain other diseases. We don't look down upon them. That's just sort of the luck of the draw. You get cancer or whatever it may be. But for some reason, there's this terrible stigma with addicts. Mm-hmm. And we fucking throw them to the side. And there's, yeah. you know, uh, and, I, and I hope that with, re, if somebody wants to understand about the, the, uh, the mental anguish that we go through as addicts and why we do the things that we do and hurt the people that we love. I've tried to put it in there as candidly as I could. Mm -hmm. And back when I was getting sober uh, at the start of 2008, um, the internet wasn't even really going like there was no like Facebook, I don't think, or Instagram or anything like that, or these Mm -hmm. group groups that you could join on Facebook that have, 90 to 100,000 people in a group of like where you can get on and talk about stuff and chat with people all day. Like, I would have loved that. Mm, I had to get my ass, I had to get my ass to a church every day for an hour, (laughs) you know, which is, which is great, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But I'm just saying today, now there's so many more outlets on social media and the internet that people can take advantage of. Mm. I'm curious, Brent, for you, because it it seems to me and through this conversation and through the the little bit of your book that I've read so far, it seems like you're a very um, open, very vulnerable, I always struggle with this, vulnerable Mm. person. And um, it's funny because it, it doesn't totally like connect with like the tough guy hockey player enforcer sort of like stereotype or trope that we we have in our minds and i'm wondering have you always seen yourself as this like open sort of like you you come across as like a very gentle giant and i know that for me um like taylor i grew up with a a sports background and um was an athlete and was told all of the the things that we're all told as young boys to to toughen up and be strong and don't show your emotions. But for me, um, going through my twenties and sort of evolving as a human being and, and really through this podcast and understanding the importance of vulnerability and talking about the challenges that you face. And these guys are getting sick and tired of it, but I've been talking a lot about going to therapy over the the last year and how much for a rewarding experience yeah. that that's been. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like for you, was there an evolution of of sort of being this person that bottled things up mm-hmm. into this person that became more in touch with who they are, who who they are and and open and vulnerable and and mm-hmm. sharing that experience like what how do you see that what does that what does that look like in your life to you well i think the person that i am today and the person who i've been in the last 13 years is who i really am Mm-hmm. I think I'm a pretty soft-spoken 
gentle, lovable human. Um, but for those years of from 15 or 16 until I retired, I, I couldn't think that way mm -hmm. uh, to do my job. And uh, so now I don't, uh, I look at some of the videos of me fighting and stuff and um, sort of see a, just a lost, scared kid, mm -hmm. you know, trying to hang on to a dream, even though it, the dream is at times a nightmare. Mm -hmm. and uh listen please don't get me wrong the nhl was fucking amazing <laughs> like <laughs> i had so many amazing moments in the national hockey league it was everything they told me and times it by 100 and it's the mm -hmm. best league to play in and i had a blast and oh my gosh it was so amazing mm -hmm. but that doesn't take away the fact of what i did for a living mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. like it's just that again there was there was the amazing nhl part of it which i would never take back and then the fighting part, I just, maybe I just wished I was a better hockey player. Mm -hmm. it, it is something, it is something that, that I, I really do wish as we continue to, as we continue to evolve as a society, understand mental health and addiction better, mm -hmm. that we are able to reconcile because like you said, like you couldn't be like that because because of your job. Like you couldn't be, mm -hmm. it couldn't be this version of that you are now. It's very, it's very hard to be because of the job. And I always felt like when I was playing, like I feel like I'm authentically me now. And I feel like when I was playing sports, I was like, I, I always had a, ma a little wearing bit of a mask. I was always yeah. wearing a mask. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was being this person that somebody else wanted me to be in, in some respect. And, 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 but and, it kind of it, it comes from from high school in a certain to a certain extent where like you're like I mean it's sort certainly amplified in high school where you're like you're like you're developing I don't know who I am yeah, all these yeah. people are telling me to be these things so I know that I get a positive response or at least positive in my mind when I'm when I put this mask on and be who I who who I think I have to be to impress these people and some people like brand you at twenty and some kids going straight from the draft into the NHL, you're 18, you're still, you don't know what the fuck. Oh. And you're going into, you're now making tons of money and you're going into a professional hockey league. You are traveling all around the country. You've got media attention. You've got this and that and the other thing. And I mean, like it, it's a, it's a jungle and you're trying to, you're trying to figure your way. I just, I hope that as we go forward, we're able to reconcile what we need to what what the attitude that we need to execute the job at hand and mm -hmm. also integrate and also be able to recognize <laughs> and identify and integrate who we really are as people because it's mm. really really hard to do and I don't and I only see that in hindsight so I understand that that's not something that you can just do when you're when you're, you know, when you've got that, when you've got that task at hand, you've got to go out yeah. there day in and day out and perform and the pressure and on all sides, whether Ooh. it's going out and fighting and having to, um, you know, think about, think about getting in a bare knuckle boxing match with somebody or that you've, you know, you're expected to go out there and get three points tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. um, there's big pressure. Uh, and I think also in, especially in last calendar year, like, compassion and love for people mm. like i mm -hmm. i think that that's just so important in a world that seems to be really divided right now mm -hmm. um there's just a lot of uh, a lot of fear there's a lot of negative energy that's been flowing around um a lot of uncertainty so i think compassion and love for your fellow human um can go a long way and uh uh 
I've really learned to try and not judge people because mm. as I had the one finger pointing out, I had five pointing back, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've tried to just, Hey, some of the, whether it's my friends and they make certain decisions, I'm like, Hey, that's their life. You know mm-hmm. what? I'm going to still be there for them if they need my help. Mm-hmm. And that's what it means to truly be a friend too. Like, yeah. Yeah. like the fair weather friends <gasps> fucking suck. They're not yeah. really yeah. your friends, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Brand, I want to ask you a question that we uh, we typically ask most of our guests, and it's a two-parter. Um, the first one is, <clears throat> out of your entire experience with addiction, what would you say is the biggest thing that it ended up taking away from you? Oh, geez. Can you guys hear me? <clears throat> yep. 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 The biggest thing that my addiction took from me... Um, Obviously, that would probably be, you know, my dignity or my my pride. Mm. The second part to that question, what would you say is the biggest thing that your struggle with addiction has given you? What's on your table? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the folks at home, we've been talking about it. Um, the book is called Painkiller, uh, a memoir of big league addiction, and... Uh, uh, just let our listeners know where can they, where can they find the book? Where can they find you and kind of keep up yeah. with, with the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh, just my, I guess, social media is just under my name, Brant Myers, whether that's Twitter, or Instagram. Um, and as far as the book goes, uh, pretty much, you know, Amazon, Indigo, uh, Penguin, Random House, uh, anywhere that you can buy a book, it's, it's available on, uh, it's actually, I did a, an audio book as well uh, in my voice. So oh, awesome. Uh, nice. Yeah. So if people you've are- got so- a, You've got a fucking radio voice too, dude. Like it's, you, it's <laughs> yeah. that pristine, like nice low resonance voice. It'd be a great voice for uh, audio book. Yeah. For sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the audio was uh, extremely difficult, but I'm glad that I did it. And um, so you can get it on audio or if you want to read it, you can read it. Cool. Mm-hmm. I think the, that's always great when people, when, when yeah. the, the person who writes the book does the audio, because yeah. it's, it, yeah. it just rings through very true. Yeah. Also yeah. the, uh, the cover is fucking awesome. It's <laughs> such a cool looking yeah, book. Too. So shout out to Lisa Jagger from Penguin. Uh, she yeah. absolutely crushed it. Like, yeah, it looks awesome. My, you know, it was something that we talked about having a sort of a, a tattoo feel to it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. with the font and stuff, but, uh, you know, I love actually you guys, the favorite part of that cover is that hummingbird that's flying to mm. land on a, on a stick for hope. Mm. That to me is what I really liked about it. Mm. Well, Brent, man, thank you so much for taking time yeah. out of your day to, uh, to go through your life journey with us and to, uh, to tell us a little bit about this book, because I, I honestly, I feel like this is something that, I mean, you've already said it, it's, it's, you know, that it's touched people. And I, I think that, um, there's going to be at least a few of our listeners out there who uh, this conversation has touched. So thank you so much for that. Awesome, guys. Yeah. You guys have an awesome week. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks, yeah you too. It's great to talk with you. And that was our conversation with Brant Mizey, a.k.a. Brant Myers. Um, and uh, yeah, go get his book because it is, uh, A, like we said, a beautiful, beautiful book. And if you haven't watched this on YouTube yet, you can see how his book has lined our bookshelf on the YouTube set. Yeah, yeah, really cool, uh, 
really cool to talk to him. And uh, I, I particularly was interested when I asked the question about uh, Theo Fleury, because in my mind I thought, oh, that book was like a was a really groundbreaking, and that must have made a difference. And it was, you know, his answer, his answer was, was like, like, nope. nope. And yeah. that's yeah, that was, really sad. That's a bummer. And I was, you know, it was a rude awakening to the fact that, you know, that, 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 that we haven't come as far as I hoped we would have. And it's not just the NHL. You know, it just like, goes to show, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. In yeah. general. Well, when you've got money, when you've got that much money involved, <clears throat> it, that, that's an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hopefully, 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 this book has has an impact as well. So, uh, like we said, folks, go check out the book "Painkiller." You can find it wherever you get good books. Um, and uh, that's it. We hope you enjoyed this week's recording. Uh, we will be back on Wednesday because that's fun. We're doing Wednesday recordings now and Friday and Monday and Wednesday and Friday and Monday and Wednesday and Friday and Monday and Wednesday and Friday forever. And uh, you can uh, you can find us wherever you find podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the CBC Listen app. Or if you want to watch how silly Willy Jilly Gilly Billy we get on Fridays, you can check us out over on YouTube. Smash the subscribe button. Hit the bell icon. Send Brian an email about the thumbnails. Leave you're comments. so good at YouTube stuff. <laughs> I mean, Brian, you're so good at doing the YouTube backend stuff. And Jerry, you're so good at doing the Promo? things that tell people about YouTube. <laughs> dude, are you, dude, YouTube's lit. Taylor, you're really funny on YouTube. Oh, I was uh, I was thanks. cutting together a little promo, and I just kept finding clips of you just being so funny. So oh, that's you're really funny. that's really sweet of you. Do you guys want to jerk each other off? Yeah. Sure. Okay. And if you have a letter that you would like to send us, if you've got some fan mail that you want us to read on the show, some little tidbits that you think we'll find interesting, maybe we'll read it on the show. Send it to letters at sickboypodcast.com. And if you want to be on the show and be one of our wonderful, lovely, revered guests, you can go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact, fill out the form, and maybe we will sit down and chat with you. And thanks as always to the people who make this show happen. Shout out to uh, Taylor McGilvery, Jeremy Saunders, Lauren Sankey, and myself. To our manager, Jeff Lonis, we love you. To the amazing musicians who make the music for this show. Thanks to Rich O'Coin and Take Part. And uh, thanks, Donovan, the Meerkat C. Pat Morgan, for the amazing sound design. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.